on our message today, we have a conundrum here going on in the life of Ananias of Damascus. How does one tell a friend from an enemy? Okay, Uh, Fully realizing that a Christian is called to love our enemies, you still must realize that our enemies are not called to love us. And so it is important to know who exactly are our friends in some situations. Uh, I was in a Christian band more than 40 years ago with a fellow who, by all accounts, was a Christian. And not only was he a Christian, but his wife was a Christian and his children were Christians. But as time went on, the truth came out that his wife was not his wife. They were not married. In fact, not only were they not married, but she was still married to someone else. And their children were not his children. They were her children and this other man's children. And as their life came completely apart in public, I said to him, but you're Christians. Uh, How has this happened to you? And this fellow that I'd known for a few years, four or five, looked at me and shook his head and he says, you Christians will believe anything. Okay? Right to my face, he said, you Christians will believe anything. They were not Christians, but they liked the respectability that going to church church brought to their lie of a life. Christians were known to be good. They wanted to be seen as good. All through history, it's been important for man and even Christians to tell friends from enemies. In biblical times, Dangerous times indeed, who you did not know who was your friend and who was going to betray you, as we see with uh, Saul on the road to Damascus. If one encountered a stranger on the road, uh, the Christian would draw, idly draw an ellipse in the dirt with his, uh, with his foot, a little semicircle. And if the other was a Christian, he would match it, making the sign of a fish thus identifying friends to each other. And, you know, the, the sign of the fish is one of the, the ichthus in Greek, which just means fish, one of the oldest symbols in Christianity. It's not just, I don't know if there's one on uh, the uh, Lutheran Church's uh, things anywhere, I don't see them, but it's one of the oldest symbols of Christianity. Jesus, after all, the first disciples he called were fishermen. His earliest miracles dealt with multiplying the loaves and fishes for the multitudes. Ichthus, the Greek word for fish, was used as a mnemonic tool for new believers. The I in Ichthus stood for Eusus, or Jesus in Greek. The CH in ichthus for Christos, Christ, T-H for Theos, of God. The U was for Euios, and I'm butchering it, I'm not a Greek speaker, which meant son in Greek, and S for Soter, Savior. So put together, ichthus was a device to remember Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior. And that was used from the earliest times of Christianity. 
Now, even more recently, signs and countersigns have identified friend from foe. One of my favorite examples comes from World War II during the Battle of the Bulge. The German breakthrough in Belgium allowed the Germans to capture many uniforms and vehicles of the United States Army. And even though it's against the Geneva Convention, uh, Otto Skorzeny, a German commando, and if you don't know about Otto Skorzeny, he was quite a character, most feared German soldier, I think, of the war, who later became a hero of Israel, just worth looking into Otto Skorzeny. But anyway, this was his command that was doing that. And the, he would dress his, the English-speaking Germans, and there were many of them that had been educated in the United States and gone back to Germany. But he dressed those men in the American uniforms and outfitted them with the American vehicles to ambush Americans. So, to determine friend from foe, American units began using a, a sign countersign. Only, only Americans would know. They'd call out, who won the 1943 World Series? Okay. If you did not know, you were assumed to be the enemy. And on one dark night, a challenge went out. You know, who won the 1943 World Series? And this British voice comes back and says, I haven't the foggiest idea, but I, I started with Ginger Rogers in Bachelor Mother, and the voice belonged to David Niven, a lieutenant colonel who was operating behind the lines. And uh, it was considered a satisfactory countersign because he was allowed to... Uh, to approach the American lines. So in our, in our study today, in Acts 9, 10 through 19, we see that the same friend-enemy dilemma with Saul of Tarsus in the city of Damascus. Last week we saw Saul on his way to that city with carrying the approval from the high priest to bind and transport any Christian he found to Jerusalem. He could arrest the Christians and send them back in chain for trial and imprisonment or death. Just short of the Damascus gates, Jesus got his attention with flashing, blazing light and then accused Saul of persecuting him, Jesus, personally through his ongoing persecution of the church and finally left blind, astonished and perplexed, Saul was led by the hand into Damascus. The last we saw of him last week he had embarked on a three-day fast. So, let's read through Acts 9, 10 through 19. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, 
Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me, so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Now, that's a big hunk of scripture, and I usually don't cover that much, but I did manage to get through it this week. So let's start verse by verse, and we'll, uh, and we'll um, see just what happens here. Verse 10a says, Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. Now, Ananias was one of those common Jewish names. Many people had them. We remember Ananias and his wife Sapphira from earlier in Acts. Ananias in Hebrew means Yahweh has been gracious. Perhaps it was gracious to this Ananias. Uh, Ananias and Sapphira might argue with that a little bit. But Ananias was a disciple at Damascus. This is an indication that he was one of, not one of those that had fled Jerusalem because of Saul's persecution of the church. Verse 10b says, The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And I could have gone through so many examples of God calling on his prophets and them saying, Here I am, Lord. This is found both in the Old and New Testament. Here I am, Lord, send me, as an example. Verse 11 says, And the Lord said to him, Rise, go to the street called Straight. Now, we've seen in our study in Genesis how the Jews have always liked wordplay, puns, plays on words. And I think that that's because God himself likes wordplay. And he tells Ananias that he's to go to the street called straight. Well, the word straight is used throughout the Bible to refer to moral uprightness, to ethical purity in a person. And here we have Saul of Damascus staying in the house of a man named Judas on the street called straight. Remember John the Baptist in John one twenty three says, I am the voice crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, quoting the prophecy of Isaiah. Now, the street called Straight still exists in Damascus uh, to this day, slightly altered in direction because of building and stuff. It still goes east-west mainly. It deviates slightly. And it has a different name now. It's called Durb el Mustaqim in Arabic. And because the Muslims have changed so much, I went on a search. Remember how I complained that my, my commentaries don't necessarily tell me what these things mean? I spent 15 precious minutes yesterday finding what this meant in Arabic. And you'll be happy to know that it means straight street, even today, okay? All they did was take the whatever it said before, and it still means straight 
Straight Street. And Mustaqim is a popular Arab name for children, and it just means straight, you know. So they could have saved me 15 minutes by just saying it still means straight street. Anyway, verse 11b says, And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. By the way, though I have been calling him Saul of Tarsus for the last two months, this is the first time that the in the book of Acts or in the Bible that Tarsus is is connected to, uh, to Saul. So even though we jumped the gun, this is the first time that we find out he is from Tarsus. And here's what we're told, uh, what Saul has been doing for the three days he's been fasting. He's been praying, and for good reason. His whole world has been turned upside down. His life has not been in the service of his God. Instead, he has indeed been found on the side of opposing God, as Gamaliel warned about. Not only that, but I'm sure he has realized that those who he had been jailing and killing were now by default his friends. And that his former friends, the high priests, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, were now his enemy. And they would be seeking to imprison and kill him. He has much to sort out, and it's to his credit that he went to earnest prayer. Uh, then again, sort of what the British said, uh, what Winston Churchill said about America. America will always do the right thing after they've done everything else. And perhaps Saul had done everything else from crying out to crying out to God to prayer, but somehow I think he probably started off with prayer. So in verses 11 12 together we have, And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Now, since neither Ananias nor Saul knew who won the World Series in 1943, and since neither one of them had starred with George, uh, Ginger Rogers in Bachelor Mother, God gave them something else. And a double prophecy in the Bible is always a sign of something spoken by God. Okay, A double prophecy linking two people was known to be spoken by God, not not by anything else. He gave them both a way to recognize each other as friends, competing visions that named the other. One, a man named Ananias that would lay hands on him, Saul, and restore his sight. The other man, uh, a man named Saul, would be found praying without sight at Judas' house on Straight Street. And this... Verse 13 says, But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And among the many things I love about the Bible 
is the way it unflinchingly shows human uh, reasoning and reaction. This happens often in the Bible. God will tell somebody to go and do something, and the person will say, but God, do you know? Okay. The Lord is speaking to Ananias in a vision and tells him to go to a man from Tarsus named Saul. Ananias says, Lord, I've heard of this man, which also shows you that he did not know Saul from Jerusalem. He's only heard about this man. And that, by the way, he's a bad guy. But um, he treats this like God didn't know these things already. I mean, it's... Okay, Jonah. Jonah. Jonah's a prophet. God says, Jonah, go preach the people in Nineveh. Jonah hates the people in Nineveh. Okay? So Jonah tries to run from God and hide on the other side of the world. It doesn't work. And he gets sent back to Nineveh by God. And he does not want to go. He really doesn't want to go because he knows in his heart that if he preaches to the people in Nineveh, they will repent and God will save them. And he doesn't want that. And, and Jonah's a wonderful book because after he preaches to the people in Nineveh and God saves them, he goes and pouts underneath a tree. I love it, you know. God, kill me. These people you saved. Anyway, and this Ananias says, God... This man Saul is evil. Verse 14. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. We saw last week that that is just another name for Christians, those who call on your name. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. And I think it would be better to, uh, to read this as, and he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name here. Emphasis on here. And verse 15 goes on to say, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And the word translated here, uh, Gentiles, actually means nations. In almost every translation, it does. It says Gentiles. There's like four that don't have it and have it as nations. But it's translated as Gentiles here because that's what it actually is referring to. And if you said, carry my name before the nations and kings and the children of Israel, you may think the two competing nation, nations of Israel is all that's being spoken of here instead of the Gentile nations. But the word construction actually points to the Gentile nations, to the kings, and then to the children of Israel. Keep in mind here that God tells Ananias that Saul is his chosen instrument because in a coming few verses we're going to see more about that. And verse um, 16 says, For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. You know, that sounds a little vindictive, does it not? I'm going to show him how much he's going to suffer for my name's sake. It's sort of like, look what he did. Look what I'm going to do to Saul. 
That is not, God is not vindictive. Saul will go through trials. I mean, prison over and over, floggings, beaten, um, uh, getting 39 lashes five times, and 39 lashes, as you know, 40 was considered a death sentence, and the Jews were not allowed to do that. So we'll take one off and hope that we don't lose count during the uh, during the striking. So 39 lashes five times, beaten with rods three times, stoning, shipwrecked three times. And he was in the sea for a day and a night, it says. You know, not lost at sea, but in the sea for a day and a night. Were it not God doing this, the hardships would seem vindictive. And so suffer Paul did for God's kingdom. Uh, Verses 17 through 19, which is all of what we're going to cover today, reads, So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. There are two things, uh, there's probably a lot more than two things to note here, but two things I'm going to concentrate on. The conversion of Paul is believed to have taken about a place about two years after Jesus' crucifixion and the foundation of the church. Paul was born just about zero. Zero. That's not zero AD and that's not zero BC. It is zero. Uh, they believe he was born in the year zero. So he would have been about 35 at the time of his conversion. But note that already, just two years into the church, the function of the office of the apostles is already being taken over by the local church. Ananias is a local devout Christian who is unknown to history but for here. Okay? This is it, guys. This is Ananias' big claim to... Big claim to fame. Gosh, this is a big claim to fame, what he's about to do, okay? Ananias, unknown to history, is used by Jesus to announce a new apostle, okay? Mind you, Ananias did not appoint Saul as an apostle. Jesus did. It had nothing to do with Ananias. Ananias was told to go and what to do. However, it was not Peter. It was not John or James. It was the local representative of a local church who anointed Saul as the Apostle Paul. He sent Ananias to open Saul's eyes, as it were, to publicly announce that it was Jesus who appeared to Paul on the road, which is the test qualification for apostleship. You had to see Jesus Christ alive. 
and Paul saw him on the road to Damascus. And it is, it is Ananias who announces to Saul that that is who he saw. Now he heard a voice, but he saw a light. And then, going on, he gave Paul the gift of the Holy Spirit and then baptized him. God, Jesus, used an ordinary Christian to bring into Christian fellowship and ultimately the apostleship of the most influential and dynamic Christian of all time. Not the apostles, not Peter, not James, but an otherwise unknown, forgotten, ordinary Christian. As the local church stepped up to take the place in its Christ-given role in the world, the apostles would increasingly be able to leave the role of administration of the body and get back to evangelism. And we see that everybody but James, the brother of Jesus, left Jerusalem for other ministry fields as, I would say, common missionaries, but uncommon missionaries actually, that they would give up the leadership of the Church of Jerusalem and go out to spread the word of God. The second thing of note here, Ananias restored Saul's sight, it says. So Saul regained his sight. He believed, was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he was baptized immediately, just like the Ethiopian earlier in Acts 8. Belief, then baptism. This is the correct manner of obedience in the life of a new beginner in response to the grace they have received. Belief, then baptism, and nothing else. So as we close this study, I'd like to just go back to verse 16 for a moment. Again. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Now, you know, I said earlier that God, that Jesus is not vindictive. So obviously there must be a reason for Paul's suffering other than punishment. So to explain this apparent hard to understand statement from God, I'll share something that happened to me this week. Uh, Thursday evening I got a phone call from someone I really don't know. Okay? This person is new to the mountains. I met him on a job that I'm doing on a little cabin in Deer Lodge Park. And uh, because I saw that I had some tools that would make his work easier, I offered to lend them to him. And in doing so, he wanted my phone number so he could make sure he could get them back to me. So we're on a construction site together, and that's all I know him from. I've, I've talked to him, you know, a handful of times. A couple handful of times. Maybe feetful to, you know, uh, we've been on the job together. Well, he called me from the hospital, Mountains Community. And he said, Mike, it's, it's bad. That's what he said. And now I've had my share of construction injuries, you know. And so, uh, thoughts of gore ran through my mind because every time I've hurt myself, it's been, it's been a little bit gory, okay. But he went on. 
He said, I think, I think I'm having a nervous breakdown, is what he said. He said, it's bad and they've done what they can, uh, but they're going to discharge me. And, and the sheriff says, I can't drive. They, I don't know how the sheriff got involved in this, but the sheriff says, I can't drive. I told him I would be there and do whatever he needed to be done. And like I say, this fellow had moved to the mountains. He only called me because he actually had nobody else to call. He moved here because he's retiring from the Navy. He's a CB. That's the construction arm of the Navy. And he thought maybe this would be a good place to settle down and start the next phase of his life in a nice, quiet place. Though he was a non-combatant in his job, he had done multiple deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan. And even though he wasn't in combat arms, the enemy has a vote on who is and who isn't at war. Anils will tell you he was in a non-combatant role. You know, and he calls and he says, Dad, they're shooting missiles at me. Okay, you know. He'll tell you that whether you're in combat arm or not doesn't matter. I mean, I mean, consider this. Today is the 21st anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. There were 2,000 people who were just going about their normal lives in a safe, peaceful country who were killed in a moment by godless barbarians, I will use that word, who were at war with them, though they were not under uniform or arms or anything. Somebody was at war with the people on 9-11. So I got to the hospital and was met by a military affairs volunteer. My acquaintance had not had a mental breakdown. He had a PTSD attack, which... I think is about the same thing, okay? And as I took him home, he was full of remorse and sorrow. What he was putting his wife and family and friends and his Navy shipmates through with this this involuntary, voluntary hospitalization of his. So I told that man, this man who had served his country for 20 years in war zones, that he was judging himself by standards that nobody else would, not his family, not his friends, certainly not I. His standards for himself were impossibly high, and he was broken temporarily trying to live up to that. That brings me back to the Apostle Paul and Jesus. Why did Paul have to suffer for Jesus' name? And the reason is, is because Paul was broken. He spent three days fasting and praying because he found himself on the side of opposing God. You know, in the Narnia Chronicles, C.S. Lewis wrote a character. I don't know who it was. I've, I've read been read by my daughter, the Narnia Chronicles. But it's somebody who is opposing the character of Christ in the story, Aslan the Lion. And he's opposing him sincerely, reverently, innocently. 
He's on the wrong side by mistake because he doesn't know any better. This would be the Apostle Paul. Paul found himself opposing Jesus while he thought he was serving God. Jesus forgave Paul, but Paul would not forgive Paul. And you can see it in his letters 20, 30 years after the fact, saying, I'm the least of the apostles. I'm the least of the Christians because I have um, uh, persecuted the Christians. 20 years, 30 years later, after all Paul did, starting churches, this is what was on his mind. It was a kindness of Jesus to allow Paul to share in the suffering he had previously doled out to others. It was a kindness from Jesus. Because otherwise, even though Christ forgave him, Paul would never have forgiven himself. He would have been crushed instead of bruised. He would have been useless for God's, Jesus' intended purpose. Instead, Jesus allowed Paul to suffer, giving Paul the self-redemption that Christ had already granted him with heavenly redemption. And perhaps that is the picture of suffering, of pain, and even death in this life that everyone goes through. For a Christian especially, it is not a punishment for sin from God, but perhaps a a refreshing reminder that this is what grace has ultimately saved us from and for. From separation from God and for service to God. Perhaps that is the reason for pain and suffering in this world. I don't know for certain. But I think that that's what it was for the Apostle Paul. It was restoration to his life in his own eyes before God. And it was a blessing and not punishment. Let's close in prayer.